Welcome to Speak a Dogcast. My name is David Farb, animal behavior specialist, and I'm broadcasting from WOUF Studios in beautiful Palm City, Florida. Thank you so much for joining me today. If you guys haven't clicked that subscribe or follow button, be sure you go ahead and stop what you're doing. Do that right now. I'm coming out with new episodes for you every single week. You're going to want to check them out. And you can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Speak a Dogcast, or of course, check out the website, Speak a Dogcast. Dot com. Connect with me. I want to know what you're thinking, what you're feeling, and who is out there. Now, we have a great show lined up. Now, the first segment today is going to be about separation anxiety in your dog and a little bit about how to curb that. Then we're going to have the breed of the week, followed by a segment about the royal corgis. Now, that is the corgis of the royal English household. <laughs> yeah, and then we're going to have a segment on the history of the dog, starting top to bottom. We're going to start where dogs began, how the domestication process started, and where they got to be today. Then we're going to have our listener Q&A, and if you guys have any questions for the listener Q&A, whether it's dog-related, training-related, let me know. Questions at speakadogcast.com. Now, before we get our show started, we've got to get that trivia question going here. And today's trivia question is, what breed of dog was originated in Germany by a tax collector who needed a guard dog for protection? Now, I'll give you the answer to that trivia question somewhere in today's episode. So be sure you stick around, sit, stay, you're in for a real treat. Enjoy today's podcast. Speak a Dogcast, we're going to do a segment about separation anxiety. Now, separation anxiety can manifest itself in multiple different ways. Uh, most people are familiar with the fact that a dog will sit and whine or bark or howl when you leave, or it can get even more severe, right? Dogs can become destructive, whether they're just tearing up blinds in the windows or ripping up door frames or baseboards or incessantly scratching, destroying couches, ripping up pillows. I have heard it all. Yes, separation anxiety can manifest itself in multiple different ways. And the first thing when I get a phone call for something with like separation anxiety, the first thing I'm going to ask the owner is, how often are you walking and exercising your dog? Because it's probably not enough. Not even probably. I can tell you right now, (laughs) if your dog has separation anxiety and you're experiencing any of those things I listed, then you are not exercising your dog enough. Now you're probably saying, but David, I walk my dog every morning before I leave for work, or we go to the dog parks on the weekends, or I play fetch with them every day, or I have a big backyard. I don't need to take my dogs for walks. No, that's terrible, and that is completely wrong. (laughs) No, if you haven't listened to my podcast segment on how to walk your dog and the importance of the walk, then you need to go back and check it out. Have a listen. Um, But suffice to say, you you need to get on a walk with your dog, and you need to get on a proper walk with your dog. There is a right and a wrong way to do the walk, and as I've talked about before, you have to do it correctly. So we'll just kind of touch on this for a moment here. Quick reminder that walks are 85% mental and only 15% physical, right? Most people treat it the other way around, but it's important that we understand getting your dog focused and getting your dog engaged as if they're like on a mission on the walk. That's what's important. That's how we create a quality walk, okay? Getting that mental energy drained is going to go a long way for alleviating some of that separation anxiety. Now, I'm not saying don't take your dog in the backyard and play with them. I'm not saying don't go to the dog, but I'm not saying don't throw a tennis ball. Those are all great supplements. They're a great physical supplement. But the walk, 
The walk is like math and science class, not recess. Okay. It's not that I don't want the kid to have recess. It's not that I don't want your dog to have recess time, but we have to have both. We have to have the meat and potatoes of the science and math class, and then we can have recess or playtime or ball time or what have you. Okay. So that's the first thing we need to understand is you have to have a proper walk. Absolutely have to have a proper walk in order to solve those issues. Now, another thing to note with separation anxiety, don't make a big deal about leaving the house. Yeah, don't make a big deal. Don't have a conversation with your dog. You don't need to go, I'll be back in a little bit. It's okay. You don't have to None of that stuff. Guys, I got news for you. Your dog doesn't know what the hell you're saying. Um, That's just the truth of it. If anything, you're actually making your dog more anxious. Because all you're doing is talking to him and trying to calm your dog's going, I don't know what you're saying to me, but it seems like you're really unsure of yourself and I don't know what's happening. So maybe I should... You're just working your dog up and making them worse. Please don't try to reason with your dogs. It's not going to work. Look, when I leave my house, I literally grab my keys, turn, walk out the door. I don't say a word to my dogs because I don't need them feeling uneasy about me going out the door. Me leaving for three hours should be no different than me walking out the front door to go feed my horse real quick and come back inside. Okay, That's how they should view it. So if I treat myself leaving the house as a totally different thing than just walking out the front door, then your dog is going to view it that way. You're conditioning that to be a big deal. So don't make a big deal about leaving the house. It's one of the worst things you can do. Look, my grandmother used to do this. Now, again, I wasn't a dog trainer back then when I was a little kid. I didn't know any better. But my grandmother used to reason with her dog and go, it's okay. She used to have to make her hop up on this chair right before she, and she'd sit down next to her and pet her and reason with her. And and that dog would sit there and whine as she's reasoning with her (laughs) because the dog doesn't understand it. And it's funny because growing up with my dog, we didn't talk to her when we left. We just left and she never cared. (laughs) She never had separation anxiety. She really didn't mind at all. She would be passed out on the couch when we'd leave sometimes. She'd sure she'd be happy. She'd get up off the couch, come and wag her tail when we came home. But that's healthy. That's what it should be. She shouldn't be worried when we're not there. Right. So again, don't reason with your dog. It's one of the worst things you can do. Just turn and leave. Don't make it a big deal. The more you don't make it a big deal, the more your dog won't think it's a big deal. Now, like I said before, if the separation anxiety has gotten to the point of being destructive, well, you're going to have to take some extra steps at that point because what you have is a very high-strung dog. And normally what that means is that dog really hasn't been exercised. Now, any kind of separation anxiety, I highly recommend adding extra exercise. But if your dog has gotten to the point of being destructive you better be adding even, you better double, double the amount of exercise you would normally do for a dog with separation anxiety. Uh, They really need to get tired because that destructiveness, what they're telling you is not only do they have that anxiety about you leaving, but they have all of this pent up energy and they're going to get it out some way. And they do, don't they? They destroy your house. Uh, And that's not the way we want them getting that energy out. So if you can get them exhausted, look, I always say, if your dog is too tired to be anxious, then guess what? They're not going to be anxious. <laughs> it's a pretty simple fix. Uh, now, not always. The exercise is usually just a part of the regimen of fixing separation anxiety, but it's a very, very large part of it. So keep that in mind. If your dog is extra destructive or extra anxious, then you need to be going for extra exercise for a while until we can bring that back in uh, to a more controlled level. 
Now, another thing you need to think about is if your dog is destructive, you need to be adding in some boundaries and rules when you're not there. Okay. If a dog that's anxious has space, has room to work themselves up, well, you know, I bet you anything, anybody who has a destructive dog, go set up a webcam. Watch what your dog does when you leave because they probably, they may go straight to ripping something to shreds, but I bet you if anything, they'll try to look out the window, they'll pace a little bit, they'll actually work themselves up even more. So what kind of boundary can we put in place when we leave? A crate. Right. This is where crate training can come in real handy. And I've talked about crate training before and the importance of it. Uh, But with dogs that have separation anxiety, it's important that we have a boundary in place when you're not there, when you can't implement any rules and boundaries because you're not in the house. We need to have some sort of rule there. So just putting them in a crate, not allowing them to pace, not allowing them to work themselves up can oftentimes force them into just whining a bit and then they don't have another option but to relax. Now, again, if I've exercised them properly get them really exhausted, then put them in the crate, they're more likely to just go, ah, forget it. I'm just going to lie down. I can't even work. I can't destroy anything. Can't work myself up. I'll just relax. And now we have a behavior we can reinforce and we'll be, you know, and then, then we can strengthen that and go from there. But for the time being, I would need an anxious dog to prove that they can relax when I'm not home for at least a few months before I'm willing to remove that boundary, before I'm willing to take the crate away. Okay. Now do be careful. If you do have a very high strung dog, and you're going to immediately go put them in the crate when they're not used to being in the crate, be very careful with that, guys, because a lot of times the dogs will be, if you don't exercise them enough, if you don't take other uh, steps to make sure that they're tired enough and you put them in that crate, they might try to destroy the crate and in doing so can hurt themselves. So you do need to be very careful. I have dealt with quite a few dogs um, where even already when I get the phone call for them with the separation anxiety, they're already, they've been hurting themselves by trying to escape out of the crate. So do be careful with that and finding the balance, but really it's about getting them exercised and exhausted and then you won't have to deal with those issues, okay? Now, one other big thing that we need to talk about, if your dog has got separation anxiety, they most likely, and I kind of touched on this for a second, they most likely don't really view you as the leader, okay? Like I said, the pack is not allowed to walk away from the leader, but the leader is allowed to walk away from the pack. So if your dog has a problem with you walking away, then like I said, they don't view you as a leader, and that's a problem. That's the core issue going on there, okay? How do we get our dog to view us as a leader? Well, <laughs> you better listen to all of my podcast segments. <laughs> it takes a lot. Um, it's 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 a process, right? It's Because it's training, and training is a process. How do we get our dogs to look at us as a leader? The first way, guys, a healthy walk. I've said it once. I'll say it twice. I say it at the end of every single one of my segments. Go out and walk your dog. I'm not just saying it to be silly or fun. I'm saying it because of the importance of it. You must walk your dog consistently. You must walk your dog correctly. And you must walk your dog every single day. That is the easiest way to establish yourself as a leader. And that you, not only as your leader, but that you have good information to be able to offer your dog. Because that's what training is about. It's about being able to offer your dog good information that they want to listen to. And they want to uh, rinse and repeat that behavior with you. Okay, So it's all conditioning. But at the end of the day, your dog needs to view you as a leader. You have to be the pack leader, guys. That's just a part of it, number one. Number two, your dog needs to be well exercised and going for proper walks, right and a wrong way to do the walk, have to be doing the rock walks the correct way. And of course, three, if we really need to put boundaries in place, such as a crate, 
or something like that when we're gone to make sure our dog understands the boundaries don't, the rules don't change just because you're leaving, I highly recommend doing that. So really take that into consideration. But at the end of the day, I think it comes down to your dog needs to view you as a leader and your dog needs to be mentally and physically exercised. Next up on Speak a Dogcast, it's our Breed of the Week. This week's Breed of the Week is the Mastiff. Now, the Mastiff is a giant breed of dog, and males are going to weigh in at anywhere from 160 to 230 pounds. Females will weigh in at 120 to 170 pounds, and these guys are members of the working group. Now, these massive wrinkly dogs, they can be intimidating for some, but behind those huge square bodies and wrinkly faces is a patient and lovable dog. They make great companions and guardians, and they are loyal and protective of their families. These guys can have a natural caution around strangers, so early socialization and training is an absolute must. Getting a dog of this size, it's a large undertaking, and it's a commitment and one that's not to be taken lightly. Raising a Mastiff can be quite a chore. Things like proper nutrition are very important for a dog that grows this fast because if they're fed an improper diet, these guys are prone to skeletal disorders. So it's important that you understand the dietary needs for a Mastiff. While these guys are generally a healthy dog, their life expectancy, unfortunately, it's a bit short-lived at only six to nine years. One other thing to note about owning a Mastiff is, well, if you're going to have one of these dogs, you better have a stack of towels lying around because they are big droolers. Yeah, those drool bombs, they're going to go everywhere, all over you, your furniture, your dog's faces, your guests. So you got to have a lot of towels ready to go. Now, the origin of the Mastiff, they've been known to exist for thousands of years. Evidence from Rome, Greece, Egypt, China, and Tibet all have traces of giant, ferocious canines that were classified as Mastiffs. The Tibetan Mastiff is an example of one of those breeds that still exist today. Now, the British Mastiff dog that we all know now, it's, uh, well, it's actually pretty similar to the ancient breed. When Julius Caesar led the invasion of Britain in 55 BC, he was impressed by the Mastiffs who helped defend the island against the, uh, their invasion and made note of it in his campaign journals. British Mastiffs were then brought back to Rome to battle wild beasts and human gladiators in the arena. And the Mastiff that we know today kind of came around, came to be in medieval England. They were used as big game hunters and guardians of estates. The Mastiffs also fought alongside the British and the French in 1415 at the Battle of Agincourt, later immortalized by Shakespeare. By the end of World War II, England stood victorious, but of course depleted on resources. And even with the dogs, you know, there was only estimated only that 14 Mastiffs survived in the entire country after the war. And the Mastiff population in England was actually rebuilt by the help of U.S. breeders who exported specimens of good British stock back to the mother country. Today's Mastiff is a more docile and friendly, uh, friendly companion than his ancient forebears, but of course, no less courageous. In these crazy times we are living in right now, there is only one thing for certain. You gotta eat. And if you gotta eat, you better eat good. I know when I'm cooking and eating at home, I only want to use the highest quality ingredients. So I turn to my friend Ken Ko over at Southern Pride Gourmet Foods. You can check him out too over at southernpridegourmetfoods.com. Now they have barbecue sauces, spice rubs, hot sauces, 
and jellies, just to name a few. I got my hands on some of that peach habanero jelly, and I was putting it on everything. I was eating it on my toast in the morning. I also took some of Ken's barbecue sauce, slapped it on some pork, finished it off with some of that habanero jelly, stuck it in the oven, and it was sweet, tangy, spicy deliciousness. Absolutely amazing. And when you buy from Southern Pride Gourmet Foods, you know you're getting a quality product from a quality guy. Ken knows what he's talking about, and he better. He's been doing it right and doing it right for over 50 years. The best part, guys, Southern Pride delivers nationwide. That's right, nationwide delivery. Now, he also has amazing gift baskets, and with the holidays coming up, you're definitely going to want to get your hands on those, and definitely be sure you get your hands on some of the beef jerky Ken sells. It is some of the most delectable beef jerky I've ever tasted. I am a beef jerky fanatic. All different kinds of flavors to choose from. You know, you just have to do yourself a favor. Head on over to southernpridegourmetfoods.com. Check it out for yourself. That's right, southernpridegourmetfoods.com, where everything they have is yummy for the tummy. Next up on Speak a Dogcast, it's all about the Royal Corgis. Now, if any of you are like me and you love watching shows like The Crown, then you've probably become familiar with the many dogs, especially corgi breeds, of Queen Elizabeth II. Right Now, the royal corgi, corgis, they were actually Pembroke Welsh corgi dogs, and they were owned by the Queen, her parents, King George VI, and Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother. They've all been fond of corgis for a long time, and of course, Queen Elizabeth II's been fond of them since she was a little kid, and she's actually owned more than 30 Corgis, yes, more than 30 corgis since she became Queen of the Commonwealth Realms in 1952. Now, what's really cool is she's actually owned at least one corgi at any given time between the years 1933 and 2018. I mean, that's incredible. That is a long, long time. Now, she fell in love originally with the corgis because, like I said, her father had owned them. And uh, her father, King George VI, actually brought home a corgi for her named Dookie in 1933. And there's a famous photograph uh, from King George V, uh, excuse me, the sixth photo album that shows 10-year-old Princess Elizabeth, which is, of course, later Queen Elizabeth II, with Dookie at Balmoral. Now, Elizabeth and her sister, Princess Margaret, would feed Dookie by hand from a dish held by a footman. Maybe a little bit different than you or I raised a dog, right? <laughs> so, yeah, those dogs in the royal household definitely have a different lifestyle, I think, than most of us would think our dogs are used to. Um, you know, in 1944, it was interesting because Elizabeth was given a dog named Susan as a gift to her on her 18th birthday, and she loved this dog. It accompanied her everywhere, even went with her on her honeymoon in 1947. And all the corgis owned by the queen after this were actually descendants of Susan. So that's kind of cool. The queen really loved not only owning them, but she took a huge part in breeding them and caring for them on a day-to-day -day basis. And, uh, you know, when you have that many dogs and, and you, you come up with a lot of names, and I actually was curious. I wanted to look up quite a few of the names and see some. Some of them you hear in the show, of course. And, uh, you know, she, she, she started with normal names such as like a Monty, a Susan, Holly, Emma, Lynette, Noble, Willow, and Heather. But then she got a little more creative, and I think maybe you have to when you've got that many dogs in your care. And the names started getting creative like Candy and Sugar, Boxy, Bushy, Brush, Honey, Whiskey, Sherry, Vulcan, Cider, Berry, Flash, Spick, Span, Tiny, Bisto, and Oxo. Yeah, so a lot of wide variety of names there. Now, she didn't just have Corgi. She also actually was very fond of the Doxum Corgi mix as well. 
So some of those names were the corgis, some of those were the mixes. And of course, these dogs enjoyed a wonderfully privileged life in Buckingham Palace. They actually resided in their own room devoted to their habitation, known fondly as the corgi room, of course. Now, they slept in elevated wicker baskets. And like I said, the queen actually tended to her corgis in the kennel on her own. And she would choose the sires of the litters that were bred in the kennel. And the corgis had an extensive menu, as you know you would expect they would, uh, at the palace, which included fresh rabbit, fresh beef, and of course, all served up by a gourmet chef. Why wouldn't it be? <laughs> now, on several occasions, not all fun and games in the palace with dogs. And as I expected, I wanted to do a little research on it. And as, as you know, on several occasions, the queen or her staff have been injured by the corgis over the years. <clears throat> Need to get some training going on in that place. In 1954, the palace clockwinder Leonard Hubbard was actually bitten by Susan upon entering the nursery at Royal Lodge, Windsor. Later in the same year, one of the Queen Mother's corgis bit a policeman on guard duty in London. Now, you'd think, again, they would hire a professional, and luckily they did at some point. Uh, it was actually in 1989, the royal family hired an animal psychologist to tame the dogs after they developed a nasty habit, of course, of nipping them in the staff. Uh, it sounds to me maybe like they should have hired a trainer or a behavior specialist as opposed to an animal psychologist, but hey, you know. Uh, because unfortunately, even after they hired that animal psychologist, they continued to have a couple issues. Oh, crazy. So you can see even the queen, even the queen can't escape uh, undesired behavior if you don't nip that stuff in the butt, right? <laughs> now, these corgis, the royal corgis, they're known all across the world as being closely associated with the queen. They're famous, right? They've had numerous items dedicated to them. In particular, they're actually the subject of many statues and works of art. Now, because of the Queen's fondness for the Welsh Corgi, an increased, uh, you know, there was an increased number of Corgis that were exhibited in the 1954 West Australian Canine Association's Royal Show. Now, even Queen Elizabeth's crown coin, right? Even the crown coin has her sitting next to a Corgi. <laughs> yes, the uh, coin was actually debuted at her Golden Jubilee, and it shows the Queen with her Corgis. Now, it was reported in 2015, July 2015, the Queen has actually stopped breeding Corgis as she does not wish that any of them survive her in the event of her death. So, you know, she said she didn't want to leave any young dogs behind and wanted to put an end to the practice. So, unfortunately, as of April 2018, with the death of Willow, the queen no longer has any full-bred corgis. She actually only has one dorgy, a dachshund corgi, uh, left named Candy that's still alive today. Are you tired of your dog barking all the time? Or maybe you want them to stop jumping on people when they come over. Or does your dog take you for a walk instead of the other way around? We can help. At The Nature of Training, we are committed to improving the relationships and lives people have with their pets. No matter what behavioral issue you are experiencing, from an unruly puppy to more severe issues, we can help. Offering a wide variety of services such as in-home training, doggy and puppy boot camps, doggy day camps, boarding, and more. For more information, check out our website, www.thenatureoftraining.com, or you can find us on Facebook or Instagram at David Paws. Located in Palm City, Florida, serving all of the Treasure Coast and North Palm Beach County. The Nature of Training, helping you achieve success with your pet.
trivia question, what breed of dog was originated in Germany by a tax collector who needed a guard dog for protection? The Doberman. Yes, the Doberman Pinscher was originated in Germany around 1890 by Louis Doberman, a tax collector who needed a guard dog for protection. He was hoping to develop a breed of dog with maximum strength, loyalty, intelligence, and fierceness, which of course we know the Doberman originally fulfilled. Next on Speak a Dogcast, it's the history of dogs. And to understand more about the history of dogs, I feel like we kind of have to start with some maybe dry information, maybe even a little bit boring to some. Uh, but just the first minute or two, I think it's important to touch on the real beginnings of where dogs started. And for you dog nerds out there, I'm sure you'll enjoy it. But uh, anybody else, maybe just get through the first minute or two of this information and then we'll hear more about the domestication side of dogs. Now, to start talking about the history of dogs, we have to go back, yes, way back, way back to about 60 million years ago. That's when paleontologists and archaeologists have determined that a small mammal, rather weasel-like creature that lived in what are now parts of Asia, uh, called myosis, and that's the genus that became the ancestor of the animals known today as canids, dogs, jackals, wolves, and foxes. Now, myosis did not leave direct descendants, but dog-like canids did evolve from it. So about by 30 to 40 million years ago, myosis had evolved into the tr first true dog, namely Cynodictus. Now Cynodictus, this was a medium-sized animal, longer than it was tall, with a long tail and fairly brushy coat. Over the millennia, Cynodictus gave rise to two branches, one in Africa, the other in Eurasia. Now, the Eurasian branch was called Tamarctus and is the progenitor of wolves, dogs, and foxes. So, this is where dogs start to come from. Now, we have to start talking about the domestication of dogs, but when we start talking about the domestication of dogs, well, the timing, the location, it all becomes a little bit less clear in a matter of significant debate. Now, one thing that is for certain that we do know, dogs were the first domesticated animal, which is pretty darn cool, I think. Um, yes, they were the first domesticated animal, and they became widely distributed throughout Europe, Asia, and North America. However, one genetic study that compared the DNA of dogs and wolves inhabiting areas thought to be centers of dog domestication suggests that dogs and modern wolves belong to separate lineages that share a common ancestor. Now, it's also possible that some of the dogs of today descended not only from the wolf, but rather from the jackal as well. Now, these dogs found in Africa might have given rise to some of the present native African breeds. So really kind of fascinating stuff. Um, you know, the more we look into it, the more we dive into it, the more we study, the more we realize that uh, we don't know anything. <laughs> no, uh, it's not that we don't know anything, but as it is with science, you know, the more you start uncovering, maybe it kind of changes some of our preconceived notions about this. And that's that's how it is with the domestication of the dog. We're really not certain. We don't think at this point that it was necessarily one wolf species that is the, you know, every dog on this planet is directly related. Um, it could have been a wide variety. So we, we think we know from the wolf for sure. The jackal, possibly it really all is kind of muddy and murky right now. So we're still obviously researching and diving more into that. So no matter what the origins are, though, hey, all canids, they have certain common characteristics, right? They're all mammals. Uh, they all bear live young. So 
we know that a lot of these also, uh, most of these carnivores have similar dental structures too, and that's what allows paleontologists to be able to identify them, be able to see these similarities and commonalities, and try to come to the best conclusion we can as far as where their domestication went. So how long have we been domesticating dogs? Well, again, kind of up for debate. There's evidence pointing to a wide variety of timelines. Some timelines are 15 to 20,000 years, others say 30, 40,000, and even longer. Now, there's evidence all over the world. Um, one evidence was found in the Czech Republic at a burial site where they actually found a dog that had been uh, buried and then a mammoth bone placed in the dog's mouth after, after the death. So what that shows us is that a human being not only took the time and care to bury this animal, but also to put that bone in its mouth. And that shows us that there's an emotional connection or a bond there. And so what that tells us is that we had been domesticating and working with that animal potentially thousands of years longer than when it was found. And it was found around 32,000 years ago. So again, that kind of puts it up in the air on how long we've really been domesticating animals. Or excuse me, domesticating dogs. Now, fossil remains do suggest that by the time we reached the Bronze Age, which is, which is about 4500 BC or so, by the time we got there, we actually had ended up with five distinct type of types of dogs. Now, these different five types, they were the Mastiffs, Wolf-type dogs, Sighthounds, such as the Saluki or Greyhound, Pointing Dogs, and Herding Dogs. So again, really interesting that clearly the domestication process had been going on for a long time to be able to narrow it down to these these five types of dogs by then so so how did the domestication process really start once again up for debate <laughs> we don't really know for certain but one theory is that uh, there were wild canid scavengers that would be near tribal campsites at the same time that ancient humans had discovered a hunting partner in animals that ventured close by so what ended up happening is that these wild canids would find scraps and leftovers of the humans that were hunting, and they ended up, well, following them around, wouldn't you? You get a free meal, free hand out there. And then we started learning that, hey, uh, we can actually use these animals to help hunt with us. You know, dog, dog-like creatures, canids, they're pack animals, they're pack mentality animals, and quite frankly, human beings are as well. We hunt in packs, we socialize in packs, we live in packs. Um, it's, it's very similar when you think about it to cannons and, and how they operate. So that natural instinctual similarity, well, we recognized it and we started utilizing each other. Really? I mean, it's, it's, it's what I talk about all the time, right? I've talked about this before with psychology. It's manipulation. It's manipulation at its finest. Um, we are going to use the dogs to hunt. So we have better survival. We can hunt bigger and better game. And they're going to work in the same way. They can utilize us to hunt and, and ensure their survival and ensure they're getting fed. So it's a mutually beneficial relationship through manipulation. And so what ends up happening is over time, it's passed through generations that these dogs were okay with human beings and being close to us and working with us. And before you know it, the domestication process begins over the course of thousands of years and boom, there you go. So sort of a passive uh, theory on the domestication process. But then there's also the active theory. And that's that we actually went out and attempted to tame wild animals. And we know we tried to do this. There's evidence of it. And so the, the theory is that we went out and just tamed the dogs and tried to breed them and so on and so forth until we created 
what we were looking for in a dog, the traits that we were trying to trying to breed in the dog, right? And so that's another theory on how domestication or domesticating process, domestication process with dogs worked. Now, we also know that many cultures around the world um, really revered dogs and looked at them as godlike creatures. Everybody knows in Egypt, right, um, that they were they were really looked at and revered as gods and they were pampered by their own servants. Dogs were pampered by their own servants, even outfitted with jeweled collars, fed the choicest diets. And royalty actually were the only ones permitted to own purebred dogs in ancient Egypt. And of course, upon the death of royalty uh, or ruler, he would have his favorite dog buried with him to protect him from harm in the afterlife. So, you know, a lot of cultures around the world really started to see the benefit of dogs and see what an amazing creature they were and began worshiping them. So once it became clear to human beings that dogs were faster and stronger in some regards than humans and, of course, could see and hear better, we began to realize we could actually take these qualities and these certain attributes and breed them. And we could find a dog that could smell better than another dog and take that dog. And, breed. and we started understanding on a very basic level on how to domesticate animals and how to increase those desired traits, right? So as society changed and agri agricultural needs changed, in addition, hunting became a mean of sustaining life, other breeds of dogs were developed. And then, of course, we had herding and guarding dogs developed to protect farmers, protect their flocks. At the same time, then small breeds started becoming desirable as a plaything or maybe a companion for nobility, Right, all the all the rich and royalty, they're not out in the fields. They don't need to protect their farms. So dogs became less of a necessity for life and more of as a uh, as a social thing and a fun thing to do. Now, even in ancient China, we know that the breeds such as the Pekingese, well, they were bred specifically to be lap dogs and were revered by Chinese royalty. Okay. So it was interesting to see the different domestication and different needs of dogs being bred. Of course, there were terriers that were being bred and developed mainly in England, and that was to rid granaries and barns of rodents. Pointers and retrievers, of course, they were selected for special tasks relating to aiding hunters to find and capture game. So many of these breeds have their ancient roots and ancient origins, while a lot of them maybe were developed later on as recently as the 1800s. You know, dogs really are very lucky that they made it through the domestication process uh, because there was a large barrier that could have potentially gotten in the way and did often get in the way. And it's something that we still deal with today, and that's rabies. Now, of course, dogs today can get their rabies shot to help prevent that, but that was not always the case. You know, we've been uh, human beings have had to be cautious and aware of rabies for almost 4,000 years now. And once it was realized that once you were bitten, it was pretty certain you were going to die if you were bitten by a rabid animal, people really tried to start placing certain rules and punishments in place aimed at preventing the spread of rabies. So different cultures around the world and different regions had different ways of addressing and dealing with this. And unfortunately, even today, some cultures, even in the Middle East, dogs are still very, very much considered a dirty and undesired animal. So dogs are not allowed in, certain, in the house in certain parts of the world. So, you know, it's very interesting in how that evolution happened. And rabies definitely played a significant role. You know, even in something as the Bible, the Bible even references dogs and dogs did not exactly have a good reputation there. And they were not always well, well loved. You know, there's stories of Packs of wild dogs were being feared, and any contact with dog saliva was perceived to be terrible. You actually, they, you know, the Bible says you have to wash your hands seven times if you were exposed to dog saliva. 
Now, during the Middle Ages in Europe, regulations for the containment of domestic dogs to help keep people safe, of course, uh, and the elimination of stray dogs were passed in many cities and states. Each community had its own way of dealing with the disease, ranging from thorough wound cleansing after being bitten to faith-based cures. Uh, One of them was you could supposedly place a hair of the diseased dog on the bite and wear a charm and it would protect you, but of course, none of that worked. You know, in the minds of some people, dogs were a faithful friend and a working companion, but in others, it was the carrier of a frightening and deadly disease. So again, really, it's quite um, an incredible story that dogs were able to make it through the domestication process. And it's fascinating how really, really our evolution sort of depended upon them and vice versa. I mean, quite frankly, the domestic dog would not exist today if it was not for human beings. We created this. And that's one of the other fascinating things about dogs. Dogs are the largest eugenics project that has ever been undertaken in the world. I mean, really, when you think about it, the amount of dog breeds that exist today versus just 300 years ago, it's, it's, it's astronomical. And the fact that we can breed them so quickly and cross genetics and... It's really been a fascinating study, and there have been countless studies done on the genetics and the processes of it and and how it has all worked, and really, really, really fascinating stuff. You could dive into this all day, and I could go on a whole topic about dog eugenics. We're not going to go too off on that today because, again, this is about the history of the dog and how the dog got to be where it is today. Um, But majority of dog breeds today really didn't even exist, well, 200 years ago. You can actually think the Victorian period, the Victorian era, uh, for most of the dogs you see today, really it was a lot of very bored, very wealthy people who decided to create a lot of these dog breeds. Not necessarily out of necessity, (laughs) but out of boredom. So they took a lot of these dogs that were originally bred out of necessity and started breeding them and mixing them amongst each other, and that's how we got a lot of the breeds we have today. So that instinct, those instinctual needs, those instinctual fulfillments of, of the wolf or whatever they were bred for, it's always still in there, right? It's still in the back of their brains. But really just an amazing, amazing uh, story of genetics, eugenics, and, and the evolution of mankind, quite frankly, and how we came to be and how the dog came to be. on Speak a Dogcast, it's our listener Q&A. First question today comes from Guy in Sarasota, Florida. Guy asks, do dogs get jealous? Well, I don't think of it quite like that. Uh, you know, there's been studies done that say dogs don't like it when their owners give attention to other dogs or even inanimate objects like a stuffed dog. But I look at it a little more basic. Dogs are competitive predators by nature. I think it's more about competition bred into the predator as a survival mechanism. Are they really jealous? You know, even with these studies, my personal opinion is I don't think we can definitively say my dog is jealous without asking their feelings, which obviously we cannot do. It's a slippery slope to assume we know a dog is jealous or they have these feelings or those feelings that we can't prove that they have. 
So to me, it's more basic and instinctual. Look, my job as an animal behavior specialist is to be able to measure behavior in the most quantifiable and and quantitative way possible, right? I try to qualify and quantify everything I can to the most smallest measurable um, measurable mechanism. And, and unfortunately, when it comes to feelings in animals, you can't measure them. So I look at it as more instinctual. It's about competition, right? It goes back to when they were puppies and competing for mom and competing not only for her affection, but food and things like that. So is your dog really jealous or is it instinct? I can't say for certain. Next question. This comes from Jennifer in Savannah, Georgia. Now, Jennifer asks, why do dogs circle in place before lying down? That's a good question, Jennifer. Now, we have to kind of go back to before we gave dogs comfy pillows and blankets and beds to lay on, they had to make their own beds. And circling, that circling motion would actually push the grasses and the brush down to make a little comfortable bedding for themselves. And not only that, this movement would actually help scatter bugs and snakes out of the way. You know, dogs will also make like a scratching motion at their bed. People see that all the time where they're, you know, we think they're, oh, they're digging a hole to China. Um, (laughs) No, actually that motion, again, same thing. It'll help lay some scent down, mark some territory, and as well as scare those bugs and snakes away. So there's just some instinctual behaviors that are still there even after thousands of years of domestication. Next question. This comes from Jason from Boulder, Colorado. Jason asks, should I get pet insurance for my dogs? Ooh, okay, so here's my personal feelings on pet insurance. Now, I do not have pet insurance for my animals. Uh, Look, I've got four dogs and a cat as far as domesticated, you know, household pets go, uh, and I don't have pet insurance for them. And the reason why was the cost was too high compared to what I spend in a normal year for my dogs. I mean, the monthly rate alone uh, was going to come very close to what I I pay, if not the same or more, um, for normal health care for my dogs. So most health insurances, uh, you know, it just didn't work out for me and my dogs. Another issue is most health insurances I have found that I found don't pay for anything up front. You have to get reimbursed. And of course, that's after the fact and if they even approve it. So this isn't a financial podcast. (laughs) We're not going to talk about financial advice too much. Me personally, I don't think pet insurance is a very good idea. And look, I'll be honest, and and I may get some boo-hoos at this, but it's just the truth. If you can't afford a dog, you probably shouldn't have one. Dogs cost a lot of money, and believe me, guys, I can attest to that. You don't even want to know what my vet bills for the year look like. Um, so I mean this very kind-heartedly as I, as I possibly can, and the reason why it's kind-heartedly is because it's doing what's best for the dog and yourself. If you financially cannot afford a dog, you shouldn't get one. It shouldn't be a financial burden to you in that way, as well as you want to make sure you're able to give your dog the care that they possibly need, and unfortunately... The reality is sometimes a $5,000 surgery is a part of owning a dog and a part of their normal life. So personally, I don't like pet insurance. I say no, don't get pet insurance. You know what's great, guys? A savings account. Put aside 10 bucks in a savings account, maybe an interest-bearing account for your dog specifically. That way you're actually saving a little bit of money every paycheck, even if it's only $5. And look at that. You just created pet insurance for yourself. So don't get pet insurance. Be smart with your money. 
that's going to wrap things up for the podcast today. Thank you so much for listening in and a very special thank you to, well, all of you guys. Thank you guys so much for tuning into the podcast. I appreciate it. Hey, if you have an extra second, do me a favor, click that rating, click that follow button, make sure you're checking us out. And of course, if you have any questions for the listener Q&A, email me, questions at speakadogcast.com. Have a wonderful week and don't forget to get out there and walk your dog. Thank you.